Voice of Glittering Delights! And here your host, Dandre Leyland. Science fiction and genre television has provided the little squirtite with some of its best ever moments. From the Daleks marching through London to Captain Kirk being forced to allow his lover to die to save the world. From the chilling final epic moments of Blake Seven to the intimate but no less affecting scenes of Burgess Meredith dropping his spectacles. Science fiction at its best questions the world around us, chills us, thrills us, and generally holds a mirror up to society at any given time and asks us to look hard at the reflection. In its best moments it can be moving, joyous, enlightening and provocative. What follows are not these moments. Science fiction has also been treated incredibly badly by the producers of television. Doctor Who was famously axed by a BBC One controller who, by his own admission, didn't like or understand science fiction. Many of the television shows aired under the science fiction umbrella had producers who would downplay that nomenclature, proudly proclaiming, normally in interviews in Starlog magazine, that the show they were promoting in a science fiction magazine wasn't science fiction at all. The producers of V, the series, arrogantly stated that they had the sci-fi audience, as if we, as fans of the genre, were so brain-dead we'd watch any old tripe if it had a few laser guns in it. A lot of science fiction shows tended to have a vague sci-fi element so as to get the plot moving, and then, for reasons of budget, were normally variations on an already existing successful formula. The Incredible Hulk was The Fugitive, Quantum Leap was The Lone Ranger, etc., by contrast, some other shows that weren't even science fiction at all did a science fiction or fantasy episode, or vaguely genre-related anyway, and on this show I'm going to look at a few of my favourites. One that definitely qualifies as a favourite is Strange Visitor to Hazard, the 15th episode of the 7th season of The Dukes of Hazard, which originally aired in 1985. Here is the opening teaser of the episode, and just because I've never played it before, here's Waylon Jennings' opening theme. Tonight on the Duke, three more UFO sightings in the Hazard area. There's something out of this world in Hazard. And what a day! It landed right in front of me, a big flying saucer! And it's got the town in a tizzy. Duke's was an odd duck of a show. 
Critics hated it, yet it was consistently popular with its audience and ran for an impressive seven years. The premise was that the two lead characters, Bo and Luke Duke, played by John Schneider and Tom Wopat, would be two on-probation good old southern boys who would tool around in a souped-up 1969 Dodge Charger and generally run afoul of the corrupt law enforcement in Hazard County. One J.D. Hogg and his inept sheriff, Roscoe P. Coltrane, played by Sorrel Buck and James Best. The only thing even remotely science fiction about the proceedings were how the hell they managed to jump that car over everything from ravines to the moon without it ever breaking. This episode, as were most episodes of Dukes, was a broad farcical comedy and opens with an expository radio broadcast informing the viewer that Hazard County has been suffering from a spate of flying saucer sightings. Bo is openly sceptical, Luke a little more tolerant, and Daisy Duke, the delectable Catherine Burke, is completely open to the idea that aliens are real and have indeed been visiting Hazard. As the late great Bill Hicks pointed out, why would aliens cross galaxies to end up somewhere like Hazard County? Also, there's something wonderfully ironic now about John Schneider playing a character so incredibly dismissive of UFOs after seeing him play Superman's dad for ten years. Anyway, the Hazard County folks are largely laughing this off until Deputy Enie Strait, Sonny Schroyer, witnesses a UFO landing in Skunk Hollow, which coincides with corrupt county boss Hogg's desire to inflate the coffers of Hazard with yet another of his get-rich schemes. He decides to use Enos's story to market the area as a tourist attraction. However, two bad guys show up, fulfilling Wopat's terminal critique of his own show, which was that each episode's plot could be summed up with the tagline, Two bad guys show up. These bad guys have robbed a local bank and are sleeping out in Skunk Hollow until the dust settles. Demonstrating Duke's propensity for having farcical situation build upon farcical situation, Boss Hog, Sheriff Coltrane, Bo, Luke and Daisy, plus the two bad guys and a genuine little alien dude end up in Skunk Hollow at the same time. The two bad guys scur the little alien dude played by the man inside the tweaky outfit Felix Silla and he hides inside the General Lee. Hilarity then ensues. Dukes was, like most US television of the era, incredibly formulaic, and this episode follows that structure to the letter. There are car chases, 13, 26, and 40 minutes into the episode, although the General Lee only makes one implausible, yet impressive, jump at the 14-minute mark. This may have been because Dukes moved to using models in its later years, a move that infuriated the actors, and it's possible Sorrel Book, who also directed the episode, had them written out, a practice initiated by series star Tom Wopat, who despised the use of models over practical stunt work. However, as with all episodes of Dukes, to dismiss it out of hand is to play into its hands. There's something mighty impressive about a writing staff that can wring seven years of television out of what is essentially the same plot every week. And at its heart, this is exactly the same as every other episode of Dukes. But this is to ignore the strengths, and there are some... For a fan of cars and stunt work, as I am, Dukes was always a joy. The scriptwriters were not allowed to simply put car chase in their scripts. Every move, leap, skid, crash and hood slide was carefully scripted and choreographed by one of the best stunt teams in Hollywood, led by Gary Baxley, and Dukes had some of the best stunt driving on television. The show was also played for laughs, and the actors deserve a lot of credit for bringing their heart and soul to the work, even when they knew the stories were frequently substandard. 
Book and Best were adroit physical comedians, and they worked hard off-camera to add spontaneity to their performances, creating a genuinely amusing comedy double act. A scene in the middle of this episode demonstrates this admirably. Hogg and Coltrane zoom out to Skunk Hollow to set the area up as being the site of a UFO landing, and whilst laying out gasoline as evidence of a spacecraft landing, Hogg straddles the circle of gas Coltrane is pouring just as Coltrane sets it afire. The shot of the fire licking Hogg's balls in his leap of terror is quality slapstick. The plot continues to loop around itself to create more and more ridiculous situations. The bad guys, not exactly dealing from a full deck themselves, decide to set up an elaborate scheme to outfox Hog, whilst the little alien that hid in the General Lee is found by the Dukes and nicknamed Little Cousin by Daisy. The cast really do deserve all the credit in the world for playing these scenes as real as possible, whilst clearly being preposterous. However, it again demonstrates another of Dukes' strengths. Everybody was treated as an equal on the show, irrespective of race or even planet of origin. The show even did a few episodes centering on Daisy that at least tried to address the changing role of women, albeit in a very limited way, and there still are moments of sexism apparent. However, in a medium that generally portrays Southern Americans as hick morons, Duke showed them to be kind, considerate and likeable people. Knockabout humour is also a part of this episode, and indeed the series generally. Whilst the writers clearly had no concept of science fiction, as demonstrated by the fact that the alien can pretty much do anything the plot calls for, the scene where he steals a patrol car and drives it with his feet is funny, if we ignore how he's operating the pedals. What qualifies this as a proper science fiction TV entry, though, is that there is no big reveal establishing it was all a plot by Hogg to scam hazard taxpayers out of their money. Little Cousin is a genuine alien, and the UFO sightings are real. The episode concludes with the bad guys transmitting a radio broadcast telling Hazard about the UFO landing, their plan being to rob the town when panic grabs the populace and they flee in terror. The Dukes interfere, of course they do, it's an episode of the Dukes of Hazard, and the two bad guys then snatch Little Cousin. Now... I freely admit that Cy Rose's script is plainly absurd, but when the fat bad guy, and in Dukes there was always a fat bad guy, not counting Hog, pistol whips little cousin, I genuinely felt for the creature. Maybe I'm just a soft touch. The episode culminates in a car chase and gunfight, because Dukes, and little cousin gets his own back by frying the two bad guys' hands with his heat vision, and the Dukes return him to the UFO. It's all a little cloying and laughably bad in places, yet the regulars once again give their all, even if the two bad guys aren't much to phone home about. Despite its silliness, Dukes have that warm-hearted glow to it, and whilst this is terrible science fiction, and not even a particularly good episode of Dukes, it has its moments. The Dukes would also take another foray into science fiction with another seventh season episode called Robot P. Coltrane, in which Roscoe was replaced, as the title suggests, by a robot. But the less said about that one, the better. Another episode of a popular TV show to take a stab at sci-fi is Castle. Created by Andrew Marlowe, who has the right surname to create a detective show, Castle follows acclaimed writer of detective noir Richard Castle, played by Nathan Fillion, who, after killing off his best-selling character Derek Storm, is looking for a new muse. He finds her in the shape of NY police detective Kate Beckett, played by Stana Katik, and arranges with the Murk, or friend of Castle's, to be allowed to ride along with her to get a feel for real police work. 
Castle creates a new series of books based upon Beckett, the Nicky Heat series, and every year he works on a book whilst also shadowing, helping, and occasionally hindering the NYPD. Castle is a remarkably geek-friendly show. In addition to featuring Fillion, a god amongst the fan fraternity for his role as Mal Reynolds in Firefly, there have been numerous references to comics and science fiction throughout the series' run. Castle has been established as a comics and sci-fi fan. One episode even established he owns a copy of Avengers issue 4, the first appearance of Captain America. Another episode had him dress up as Mal Reynolds for Halloween, and these touches don't just stop with Castle himself. Beckett read Frank Miller comics in college, as mentioned in one episode that dealt with the death of a graphic artist. She is also a huge fan of science fiction show Nebula 9, as established in the episode Final Frontier, which not only took place at a science fiction convention, but also featured an appearance by Jonathan Frakes, who has also directed a number of episodes. There have been Doctor Who references from Esposito, played by John Huertes, and Susan Sullivan, who played Castle's mum, Martha Rogers, is an actress who appeared in an episode of The Incredible Hulk. In a mind-bending twist of reality-meeting fiction, Sullivan did appear in The Incredible Hulk, playing Elena Marks in the pilot episode, and clips from that performance were used in an episode where Martha is looking at her old showreel. However, reality-bending is just a part of the show. In addition to more Firefly references than I have time to list here, the show publishes a tie-in book every year, part of the Nicky Heat series that is supposedly the bootline that Castle works on each season. These books are published under the byline of Richard Castle, and each book is dedicated to characters in the show. So far, six books have been published, and all of them have made the New York Times bestseller list. There have even been graphic novel versions of Castle's Derek Storm novels, adapted by Marvel as if they were adapting real books, and these graphic novels have, circuitously, also been featured on the show. Molly Quinn, who plays Castle's daughter, Alexis, attends Comic-Con every year in cosplay, dressing up in an original Star Trek outfit, as Supergirl, and even as Mal Reynolds one year. And she's voiced Supergirl in an animated feature, something she has in common with Stana Katik, who's played Lois Lane. The most mind-bending piece of reality-meeting fiction for me, however, was that one episode killed off my good friend Michael Bailey. Ever the pro, his death never caused Mike to miss a single podcasting deadline. For those unfamiliar with the show, here's the intro and the teaser for the episode we'll be discussing. There are two kinds of folks who sit around thinking about how to kill people. Psychopaths and mystery writers. I'm the kind that pays better. Who am I? I'm Rick Castle. 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 I really am ruggedly handsome, aren't I? Every writer needs inspiration, and I've found mine. Detective Kate Beckett. 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 Nikki Heath. The character he's basing on you. And thanks to my friendship with the mayor, I get to be on her case. I'd be happy to let you spank me. And together we catch killers. Make a pretty good team, you know, like Starsky and Hutch, Turner and Hooch. You do remind me a little of Hooch. Don't do this. I'm from the future. This just became my favorite case. Is there suspect a killer out of his mind? You don't think any of this could be real. Or a hero out of time? I am not there to stop it. We are all dead. Where is he? Not where. When? Castle. All new next Monday. Ostensibly a police procedural, Castle enjoys messing with audience expectations at every turn. And episodes have centered around ninjas, Father Christmas, and invisible people. They even recently did an episode set on Mars. Following the usual template for the series, however, these almost always have rational explanations. Almost. 
Time will tell the fifth episode of season six had quite a good guest cast. Joshua Gomez from Chuck, Space Above and Beyond, Rod Rowland and Voyager's Tim Russ all appeared. And the victim of the week this time was parole officer Shauna Taylor, who was murdered with no visible entry point into her apartment. Clues lead to the arrest of Simon Doyle, Gomez's character, who claims to be here to prevent Taylor's death in a scene exactly like the one in Terminator, where Kyle Reese claims to be from the future to save Sarah Connor. It comes as no surprise, therefore, that Doyle also claims to be from the future, 2035 to be precise, and has returned here after the energy wars of 2031. Apparently, in the future, neo-fascists will come to power and try to control the world's energy for themselves, but are defeated, as one of the alternate forms of energy developed by the opposition is a tachyon generator that allows them to open doors in the time stream and even lets them travel back in time. Even Castle, the king of the outlandish theory, finds this one difficult to swallow. Doyle claims to be a temporal anthropologist who travels back in time to study historically interesting dates. He's learned that somebody has travelled back without authorization and altered the time stream by killing Taylor. Normally, the time stream can correct itself, but significant deaths don't alter the time stream, and the death of Taylor has done just that. Doyle doesn't know why Taylor is important, but there has been a significant alteration to the time continuum. And if you think the name Taylor also being the name of Charlton Heston's character in Planet of the Apes is a coincidence, you've probably not been paying attention. Needless to say, as the story unfolds, Ryan and Esposito, Beckett's partners, think the story is derivative of the Terminator and Twelve Monkeys. Castle is upset that Doyle's device doesn't resemble the Doctor's sonic screwdriver, and Beckett, ever the pragmatist, simply thinks Doyle is insane. Forensic, however, proved Doyle could not have been the killer, and Castle, slowly, starts to become convinced by the man's outlandish tale. As usual for Castle, the episode boasts excellent chemistry between the leads and some sparkling dialogue. Gomez delivers all the sci-fi techno-babble wonderfully and turns in a twitchy yet thoroughly convincing performance, and the plot goes through many twists and turns, as most episodes of Castle do. Castle and Beckett follow the trail via anti-science terrorists and eco-warriors, convinced the depletion of fossil fuels will lead to a global war, similar to the one Doyle has already talked about. And throughout the entire show, we are led to believe that Doyle, and that the person who Doyle really thinks killed Taylor, a man named Ward, are crazy, giving the writers an out as we get to the end. There's an interesting subplot about Castle's daughter being old enough to leave home and move in with her boyfriend, which Castle hates, and Castle longs for a future version of Alexis to come back in time to tell her younger self what a mistake she's making. There's even a Dr. Silverman who acts as Doyle's psychiatrist, a name very similar to the Dr. Silberman Earl Bowen played in the Terminator films. Doyle eventually figures out that Ward wants to kill a student named DeChild, who will create an energy shield that prevented the neo-fascists, led by Ward, from winning the energy wars, similar to John Connor. Ward is, however, given a real explanation for pursuing DeChild, that DeChild foiled Ward's bombing of a conference six years earlier. Doyle and Ward are also linked together as being psychiatric patients in adjacent cells, which explains why Doyle knows all about Ward and what he's up to. All summed up, right? Wrong. During the course of the investigation, Ryan and Esposito are looking for a letter. The letter is coffee-stained in the photo that they have provided by Doyle. The letter receives this stain at the end of the episode when Beckett spills her coffee. 
How could Ryan and Esposito, therefore, have a photo from Doyle that has a stain on it before that happened? There is also no record of Ward from before 2007, fitting Doyle's theory that Ward overshot when he came back in time. And Doyle simply disappears from view twice over the course of the episode, with no explanation given. Ward's explanation for going after DeChile is also lacking in the real scenario. It's an awful lot of effort to go to for someone who got you sent to jail, especially as killing him in front of witnesses is going to lead to further jail time. It only makes any kind of sense if he's a time traveller. Therefore, the only logical conclusion that the viewer can glean from this episode is that time travel is real. More fantasy now than science fiction, Flashback, the seventh episode of Magnum P.I.'s third season, opens without explanation in 1936. As I could find no trailer for this episode, here is the scene where Magnum confronts Higgins about the situation. What the hell do you do to my house? Magnum, old stick, isn't your attire a trifle bizarre, even for you, even for breakfast? My underwear... What happened to my underwear? Probably another lost and sordid night with a chorus girl from the Kit Kat Club. Please stand down, when I'm sure you simply reek of cheap rye whiskey. What is this? What kind of crazy practical joke I, are you trying I to pull? I crazed. My dear fellow, it is not I ranting about the lawn in my BVDs. Now, I'd suggest a shower and a pot of black coffee. Okay, okay. Enough's enough. Now, I can take a joke. See? I'm smiling. Like a good sport. Magnum, in precisely 25 minutes, the other members of my croquet club will arrive for practice and brunch. Since it's our last opportunity for strategy and tactics. Okay? You short sheet my whole house? And you want to talk about croquet? Well, what with the frightful unemployment of the Depression, despite the commendable efforts of your President Roosevelt... Oh, sure, Higgins. Good old FDR. I'm right with you. The chaps decided the polo was a bit ostentatious, so Enough. we've turned to more proletarian pursuits. Everybody must be prepared to shoulder responsibility. Enough! This is not funny. Okay. Okay. You croquet your hearts out, but hear this ultimatum. Immediately. Immediately, I want my furniture, my phone, and my shorts back! A lesson, lads. Cheap whiskey in this heat can rot the brain. I love that scene. I think it's very funny. Anyway, Donald P. Bellasurio, whilst only dabbling with sci-fi in the original Battlestar Galactica and then later Quantum Leap, wasn't afraid to add fantasy elements to his show, and this episode of Magnum was the first to employ this technique, although it wouldn't be the last. Magnum is still a private investigator, looking into the murder of a union leader who has been accused of murdering a construction magnate. The investigation follows the usual twists one expects from a detective story, but the period setting and attention to detail, bruh, for a show of this type in 1982, set it apart. Before Moonlighting would make stunt episodes a regular part of television production, Magnum set an entire episode without explanation in the 1930s. Only Magnum suspects what's going on, that this is all a dream, and he uses his knowledge of the future to great effect. As usual for Magnum P.I., the acting is top-notch. Tom Selleck, who always looks like he would have been better suited to being a matinee idol in the 40s anyway, has a ball in the role, finally getting to spend some time in the 30s, having been denied that when he lost the part of Indiana Jones. Selleck is a gifted light comedic actor, although he's spent his career since Magnum largely in dramatic roles, and his laid-back, easy style is perfectly suited to this type of part. 
Humour and character was always emphasised in Magnum P.I., and this is no exception. Magnum's sparring with Higgins at the opening, where Magnum believes this setup is all a Higgins-orchestrated plot, is hysterical, with John Hillerman more than capable of going toe-to-toe with Selleck, and the Higgins-Magnum relationship is now firmly established. Likewise, Magnum befriends the 30s version of TC, back when being black was treated with suspicion, and Magnum and TC have an easy camaraderie, even though Roger E. Mosley subtly alters his performance to allow for the fact that this TC doesn't know Magnum from Adam. The fact that Magnum treats him no differently to anyone else is a subtle and welcome commentary on race relations, and there's a brilliant scene in the middle of the show where Magnum convinces everyone in a bar where blacks are not allowed that TC is in fact a famous boxer of the time. Three quarters of the way through the episode, Magnum is shot and killed, only for him to wake up, and whilst this trick is as old as the hills and was an eye roller, every single time Jerry Anderson did it on his shows, it works here simply because of the humour evident when Magnum finally awakens in the present. It turns out that his mind was working subconsciously on the case, an investigation into a cold case from 1936, and that he dreamt up the solution to the crime. Whilst this again could seem pat, Magnum put a lot of stock in not only his dreams and hunches throughout the run of the series, but also in his little voice, a kind of spider sense that Magnum would refer to frequently. In the present day, the episode concludes with Magnum managing to solve a 50-year-old murder. So what makes this fantasy sci-fi? It's all a dream, right? Well, not so fast, lovely listener. For one, during the climax, Magnum is searching for papers that prove who the guilty party is. And he knows exactly where they are. Something he could only know if he's already been there, as he had in the dream. Second, in the final scene, Magnum finds his 1930s-style Detroit Tigers baseball cap in the Ferrari. Where did that come from? Could this have been a stealth adaptation of Richard Matheson's bid Time Return? Finally, Buffy the Vampire Slayer dabbled with science fiction throughout its entire run. The first season episode, I, Robot, Eugene, is kind of almost sci-fi, but more in keeping with the show's more horror-based leanings. Season 3 saw a journey to an alternate dimension in an episode called The Wish, and in earshot, Buffy, through contact with a demon, can suddenly read minds. The fourth season dealt with technology gone awry, a storytelling device that can be used in both horror and science fiction. This year's Girl in the fourth season saw Faith and Buffy swap bodies, and season five's The Replacement saw Xander duplicated, but none of these were really hardcore sci-fi. All had an in-story reason, normally related to whatever demon of the week Buffy was after. Not so by season six. Season 6 of Buffy is largely considered to be the most controversial of the run, with the characters all depressed and miserable for most of the year, which means it can be a bit of a slog for even the most hardened Buffy fans. On the other side of the coin, there are those that say Season 6 is the best in terms of how it covered the tribulations of adulthood. Whatever side of the fence one chooses to lie on, Season 6 was where the show embraced more science fiction ideas wholeheartedly, with the introduction of a trio of losers and geeks as the main bad guys. It stretched credibility to me that these three were struggling when they could create great sci-fi toys. And were this a superhero comic book where this kind of thing is the norm, I would have accepted it. Buffy often aspired to be comic book-like anyway. But Buffy was primarily a horror show. 
By moving it into the realm of science fiction, it stepped a little too far beyond the realms of credibility. It's one thing to have a vampire slayer of ancient descent and demons that can conjure forth internet monsters and alternate dimensions. It's another to have three perfectly normal, albeit smart guys, build an invisibility ray. Yet that's exactly what happens in Gone, the 11th episode of Buffy's sixth season. Here's the teaser trailer. We got ourselves an invisibility ray. When an unsettled score takes Buffy out of the picture, will she slay that way forever? That remains to be seen, like you. See why time calls Buffy smarter, funnier, and dramatically richer than ever. Can we get back to freaking out about no-show Buffy? An all-new Buffy. As usual for the sixth season, the themes are heavy. Following the death of Buffy's mum and the death of Buffy herself at the end of season five, it was a bad year. Season six saw Buffy facing up to more adult concerns, such as how to run a house whilst looking after her sister Dawn. The first ten minutes is taken up with dealing with Willow's magic addiction, a non-too-subtle commentary on drugs being bad, okay? And Buffy having to deal with social services over the feeling that she's too young to be looking after Dawn. As you can see, season six was a bit more down-to-earth than the other seasons. So when the trio of losers, Jonathan, Andrew and Warren, discover a mystical gem that, when placed in a Captain Cold-type weapon, make things invisible, they decide to rob a bank and turn a few women's clothes invisible along the way. Of course, Buffy is caught in the crossfire and spends the episode doing her Sue Richards impersonation. Fun ensues. Buffy makes the social worker that came to the house think that she's insane. She terrorises traffic wardens and then engages in invisible sex with Spike. It's all in fun until we learn that prolonged exposure to the invisibility ray causes the molecular structure of whatever was exposed to break down and it becomes a race against time to revisible the invisible girl. This episode is emblematic of what was wrong with season 6. Whilst it's clearly one of Buffy's metaphorical takes on life, how Buffy feels like she needs to escape from adult responsibilities and be as free as a kid again, it's quite slowly paced and a bit lopsided as an episode. The Invisibility Ray is clearly a science fiction device, even if there's a line that says it's powered by a mystical gem. Every other time a sci-fi element has been worked into the plot, it's been done well, and the metaphor comes from story. Here it feels like the metaphor came first and they wrote a story around it. Sarah Michelle Gellar's absence from most of the episode, down to her appearing in Saturday Night Live, was presumably also a factor. Joss Whedon wasn't around for a lot of season six, as he was busy writing and prepping the pilot for Firefly and working on Angel, so the series was left in the hands of a different executive producer, and the show became more melancholy and less fun. Buffy always dealt with deeper themes than its title would imply, but there was always a huge helping of the funny to go with it, and the villains were always as entertaining as Buffy and her friends. The villains in season six are dull, possessing none of the panache of the Mayor of Sunnydale from Season 3, or Spike and Drusilla from Season 2. Jonathan being a villain again ruins his story arc from Seasons 3 and 4. Warren's a nut job, barely worthy of Buffy's time, and Andrew, despite becoming a fan favourite, I always found bland and irritating. His increased screen time in Season 7 would also be a turn-off. Still, the special effects are nicely realised, although no one explains how Buffy can see, and there's a number of funny moments and nice performances. I much preferred seasons one through three, though. Do you, lovely listener, have some science fiction or fantasy episodes of TV shows that aren't sci-fi? Certainly these are only a few. 
I didn't mention the Colby's cliffhanging series finale in which Emma Sams was abducted by aliens, or the Felicity Twilight Zone homage, or even Alias, which, whilst ostensibly a spy show, had a subplot running through the entire series about Rambaldi, a 15th century philosopher who invented a number of futuristic devices, including red matter, which J.J. Abrams also used in the 2009 Star Trek movie. It seems that even writers who don't care to work in the genre can't help but utilise some of the conventions of that genre when it suits them. Uh, let's have a look in the email bag and pull out an email. This first one comes from David Agutarez. And he says, like you, I'm super intrigued by Christopher Pike and his one-time crew. I loved The Cage Encounter as one of my favourite all-time episodes of television. He struck me as a retroactive half-step between Kirk and Picard, which I always found interesting. Looking forward to more glittering delights and please more Angela. What a great co-host she makes. Well, don't mention that, David, because she'll want paying. And uh, this, this doesn't pay. But thank you for emailing it. That was the uh, reference, obviously, to the Star Trek episode I did with the mighty Chris Franklin and you can find Chris's show Supermates over on his website just search it it's a good show you'll like it does it with his Mrs. Cindy it's well worth listening to another email plucked from the bag is from Tim Elliott can you hum a few bars for me is the subject heading hello Andy may I say another smashing pugd episode you may say that I couldn't possibly comment I enjoyed your countdown of favourite TV themes and agree that shows today seem to have dismissed the theme song as a viable way to begin a series. Network shows have so much time dedicated to commercials you only get about 20 minutes of programming. As you state, cable shows are keeping up the tradition. I do love theme tunes. I agree with many of the themes on your list. I do love the opening music to Game of Thrones and Big Bang Theory, and that 70s show also has a catchy tune. I agree with many of the themes on your list. Rockford is great, and UFO is very much a product of its time. My list was also include the third season theme to Lost in Space, the first season opener to anime space battleship Yamato, Star Blazers here in the States, first season of Space 1999, and the Mission Impossible theme. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember the early episodes of Simon and Simon had lyrics along with the music. I can't seem to find anything on YouTube, but perhaps my memory is cheating. Keep the show coming. I love Andy's lists. Tim Elliott from Texas. Well, Tim, first of all, thank you very much. I'm uh, glad you enjoyed that show. It does seem to have, have gone down very well. Your pick of the third season theme to Lost in Space is an excellent choice. Uh, John Williams did that theme, and it, it is brilliant. That one. Much better than the first two, so heartily concur with that. And I have no disagreement whatsoever with picking Space 1999 and Mission Impossible. Your memory, however, is not cheating. The first season, maybe even only half a season, of Simon and Simon did have a different theme. And it did have lyrics. It isn't very memorable, and the second one is much better, which is why I picked it for my show. Let's pluck another one out. Oh no, sorry, Tim's got a PS. PS, do you have something special planned for episode 25? Well, you already know that, Tim, because episode 25 was last time. And it was a special double-length episode all about the odd-numbered Star Trek films, which I was joined by my lovely Listen to the Prophets co-host Paul Spataro and Sean Engel. I hope you heard it. Uh, as for your question, did it come foil-stamped or with a hologram so you could buy two? Alas, no. But I like to think it was worth every penny anyway. Maybe I should have polybagged it. That would have been worthwhile, wouldn't it? Jack Bone has emailed in, or Bon, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, Jack. Uh, email in if I didn't, let me know. Last and first missions in comics is the subject heading. Hello, Andrew, and pass hello on to Chris Franklin. Hello, Chris, says Jack. 
This was a surprise. I'd gotten used to your podcast covering whole series of broad subjects such as revamps and theme tunes. It was interesting to have a focus on a few pinpoints of glittering delights and how that didn't keep your conversation from wandering far and wide. About Kirk's career path, if I'm remembering correctly from the US Navy, some officers are so specialised as not to be eligible for ship command. Medicine leaps to mind, but engineering is not one of them. Nuclear-powered submarines are only captained by nuclear engineering officers, an acknowledgement of the special requirements of that class, much like aircraft carriers are captained by former aviators. I'm of two minds about Kirk commanding a ship before the Enterprise. He's already quite a young captain. On the other hand, the Enterprise is something special, not just to Kirk. It's not just a spaceship, but a starship. There are only a dozen like her in the fleet and all that stuff. I dread a story making it a reward for something more spectacular than assuming command of a ship under fire. You just know these days it would be Kirk saving the Federation from some alternate Nero come back in time from somebody else's future. As an It's All One Universe note, did you know the design of the Saladin and Churchill had previously appeared as the Republic in Marvel's Star Trek issue 6, written by Mike W. Barr and drawn by the annual's co-plotter, Dave Cockrum? I'm told it's based on a Rick Sternbach painting of the predecessor to the Constitution class in a spaceflight chronology book tie-in to the motion picture. I did not know that, Jack. Thank you very much. That's interesting to note. Jack continues, I'm also of two minds over Space Duck. I figure Starfleet didn't just build it in the time between the Wrath of Khan and the search for Spock, but way back before the original series. As it comes to my attention today, I'm okay with it. It is simple shapes fitting in with the design aesthetic of Batman, fresh coat of paint and it'll be ready for the movie era. A final tech thought that brought up by the goose-necked viewer on the captain's chair. We never saw a mini-view screen incorporated in the arms of the chair, did we? The loss of the goose-necked viewer isn't a modernisation or upgrade then, but a loss of functionality. Although it's probably a relief to anyone who'd go over to stand by the captain and get whacked in the face when he turned his chair. <laughs> Maybe that's why they got rid of it, Jack. Health and safety. Came on the bridge and the Enterprise looked at them and went, not a chance. Jack's email concludes with, I bought the second annual way back when, based on the promise of the cover, and the memories of the first annual, but turns out I didn't get very far in reading it. Thank you for steering me back into it. It's still percolating, so I don't have anything to bring up to you that you and Chris didn't discuss. For the subgenre of final mission stories, I wish you'd brought up the undiscovered country to compare to this comic, and to all good things. It was less referential than either of these, but a bit more clumsy in some of its forward point to what will come next. I'm tempted to do a show about Undiscovered Country. Maybe invite somebody on for that. That may be interesting, because I really do like Undiscovered Country, and I think it's much underrated. Uh, Jack writing from four inches of snow in Hawaii. No? Ohio, not Hawaii. <laughs> We've come to something if Hawaii's covered in snow, isn't it? Thank you, Jack. I very much appreciated your email. Before we wrap up tonight, I've just got to discuss uh, TV tie-in novels, which get a lot of flack from pompous people who don't consider them serious literature, but they were my gateway into reading as a child. Most libraries of British primary schools in the late 70s and early 80s, if they had a science fiction section at all, were stocked to the brim with the target Doctor Who novels. Whilst these are quite simple adaptations of the episodes, they were great ways to look at the overall history of a show in an era where videotapes of old episodes were prohibitively expensive, and even then were limited. From there I discovered, thanks to the gorgeous Chris Achilios covers, James Bleach's novelizations of Star Trek episodes. The polar opposite of the Doctor Who novels, these saw the episodes compressed into a novel of short stories, and based on earlier drafts of the episodes. 
This was fascinating to me as a kid. We got to read the original endings to City on the Edge of Forever and Who Mourns for Adonai long before DVD extras. I was surprised to learn that, back in the day, fans complained that these weren't literal adaptations of the episodes and were upset by these additions. For me, the differences were part of the fun. I read and devoured A.C. Crispin's novel for V, the Starsky and Hutch Knight Rider and A-Team novels, the later Trek novels, Brian Daly's excellent Han Solo novels and the L. Neil Smith Lando Calrissian titles that followed. And when the BBC adapted it for TV, I tore into the Day of the Triffids and that led me to reading proper books. Although, I still enjoy a good novelisation. Which leads us to V, the second generation, written by V creator Kenneth Johnson. I mentioned in a previous episode that Scott Rifen, off of Dinner for Geeks and My Star Wars Story, sent me a copy, and having recently completed it, I come to offer a book report, which will spoil the book. Warning you now. Firstly, this received a scathing review on, of all things, the V Fan website. Reading the review, it became apparent the reviewer was upset that Johnson was not following up on the cliffhangers and subplots left by the sudden cancellation of V the series. But that's not what this novel is. Johnson created, wrote and directed the original V miniseries and then walked over creative differences. And this is his chance to rewrite history. Johnson, therefore, ignores the series completely and only makes one passing reference to V the Final Battle. And even though he completely ignores the ending to that miniseries. As a companion to this novel, Tor Books reprinted A.C. Crispin's novel of V but completely edited out the Final Battle material and gave Johnson a co-writer's credit, which seems a little bit dubious to me given that all it seemed to add to the proceedings was a final two-page epilogue. V, the second generation, is, as the title suggests, set 20 years after the events of the original miniseries, placing it in 2002-2003. The Earth under the visitor occupation is a very different place, with some technologies more advanced and some less so, and vast swathes of the Earth are now a barren desert. Johnson mentions that San Francisco Bay is now a small pond, and apparently one can now drive from Dover to Calais. The Resistance is still out there, but is now more scrappy and ragtag than ever after the purge of 1999 when Diana enacted swift and violent retribution on a number of Resistance cells throughout the world. How she managed to accomplish this is a mystery as the novel opens. However, the visitors are prepping new weapons to wipe out an old enemy of theirs, the ZT, who they have had a long-standing war with. Unknown to the visitors, three of the Zedtik, Breik, Aiden and Keita have landed on Earth and are working with the Resistance to bring about visitor defeat. Whether the Resistance can trust the Zedtik is an open question. Johnson spends the opening of the book setting up new characters and pays little attention to the old favourites for a good number of pages. Diana gets a large chunk of page time as the newly promoted Commandant of the Visitor Earth fleet, and Visitor good guys Martin and Willie are a big part of the early action. But mostly Johnson chooses to develop Nathan, a former Visitor teammate turned Resistance fighter, and Emma, a pop star with Visitor-friendly leanings who turns against them when she sees firsthand the squalor scientists, still ostracised by the Visitors, are living it. Over the course of the book, we are reintroduced to Juliet Paris, still leading the resistance, and Mike Donovan. Donovan's story is the most interesting. 
Having been captured and believed killed in London in the early 90s, it turns out that Donovan was the traitor who turned in resistance locations, leading to the purge of 99, something he has no memory of, given that he was exposed to a large number of visitor torture techniques and drugs to get him to talk. The resistance only find out about Donovan still being alive by accident, but later we learn that this was actually a Diana plot, as she has a camera planted in Donovan's eye, which leads her right to the resistance. This reads like an adaptation of a movie that never happened, which is apt, I suppose. Apparently, NBC were interested in reviving V after the success of the DVD, and Johnson was interested in following up the transmission duly sent at the end of part one of the original miniseries. However, NBC decided to reboot V instead of producing a sequel, no doubt inspired by the success of Battlestar Galactica, and that worked out just as well as you might expect. It saddens me that we could have got a proper sequel to V by the original creator, with some members of the original cast, if not for the boneheaded decision of a nameless TV exec who was more interested in following what everybody else was doing, instead of doing something that would have been a ratings bonanza. Following this disappointment, Johnson started touting the script out to independent movie companies after discovering that he owned the feature film rights to V, but so far nothing has come of this, and the further time goes on, the less likely it seems it'll happen with the original cast, although none of the ones featured in the book are dead, and both Mark Singer and Robert Englund are still acting. One aspect that did make me go, huh, was the idea that visitors age. Surely they could look exactly the same as they did in the series, given that they were masks. And whilst Johnson would have had to come up with an explanation as to how the actors have changed for a film version, having them look exactly the same as they did 20 years ago in the novel, where this isn't a consideration, would have made them seem more alien. Johnson also plays with ideas he explored in other shows. There are a number of visitor-human half-breeds around called dregs, mostly the result of rape or early visitor-human coupling, so none of them are over 20 years of age. These burr a resemblance to the Tanktonese from Alien Nation, and Tankton even gets a name check, as does an overdose of gamma radiation, a nod to Johnson's work on The Incredible Hulk. These disenfranchised teens are a big part of the novel, and Johnson does a good job of exploring how they feel. Julie even adopted a young girl half-breed and called her Ruby, after a character in the original mini, and she's a bubbly and likeable character, although Johnson does overdo the artful Dodger comparisons. Willie and Harmony's son, Ted, turns on his parents to become a visitor teammate, and finally receives what he considers his due, before turning back to aid his father. There's a lot of this kind of flip-flopping of sides throughout the novel, and it keeps the reader on the edge of their seat, as they never know who's going to turn traitor and who's not. There is also a lot of sex in this book. Diana is as sexually ambiguous as ever, although Diana's chief rival for the attention of the leader, Jeremy, is also sexually promiscuous with both sexes. And Emma learns that to get the information the Resistance will desperately need for the climax of the book, she will have to sleep with a visitor leader. This is even after she's had quite a number of scenes throughout the novel where she is either engaged in sex or seen and I say seen, you know, in the mind's eye kind of the way, as worrying not very much at all. The ZT, as a race, prefer to spend their time nude, coming from an insect culture, just as the visitors are reptilian, and as such they spend a lot of time in the book, completely devoid of clothing. When characters aren't having sex, they are thinking about having sex. There's nothing wrong with this, but one can only assume that the level of full frontal nudity and sex would have had to have been toned down for this to be on network TV, unless Johnson was hoping to sell it to stars.
Johnson piles on the adversity as the book nears its conclusion. Donovan's eye camera almost brings the resistance low, with Julie and many other resistance fighters caught and captured. Diana reveals herself to be a proper tactician, having been aware of Martin's traitorous ways for some time, and manipulated the situation to have Donovan escape. Donovan then learns that, to completely eliminate the visitors, the ZT warships have been told to raise planet Earth, as we are considered expendable in their war, if it means wiping out their enemy. To give Johnson full credit, the boot moves at breakneck pace as it reaches its climax. He cross-cuts the action between what's going on on Earth, on the mothership, and the individual characters. Some characters that I thought were a shoo-in for survival died, and some I thought were definitely headed for a dirt nap, survived. There are some problems with logic, such as a teacher being unable to turn off the resistance broadcast of what is happening as a student throws a remote out of the window, as this woman never heard of a plug, and the conclusion with the resistance releasing all the captives on every visitor mothership simultaneously giving us an army of humans is rather too easy. The end of the novel sees us victorious, but Johnson leaves a lot of loose ends. Presumably, had this been a successful miniseries or movie, he was leaving the door open for further instalments. Whilst the visitors have ostensibly been defeated, there are still a number of them on Earth. We also now have the ZT, who may or may not be trustworthy. In addition, Diana escapes, again, and although we have the leader in custody, I suspect she won't be going down without a fight. All told, V, the second generation, was a solid and fast-paced read. Johnson takes the sequel-remake angle for a lot of it, thematically repeating a lot of story beats to different effect, and updating where necessary. Instead of using news journalists for their propaganda, for example, the visitors are using Emma, who is a multimedia pop star, and the updates in technology don't seem as technologically advanced as we ourselves were ten years ago, as if the visitors were controlling our technological advancement. It's not great or groundbreaking as science fiction, but the original miniseries wasn't. But it's a good opportunity to catch up with some old friends and give the story a decent, if not spectacular, send-off. It's certainly more satisfying than the series, that's for sure. And, should Johnson get the opportunity, I would like him to film this. I can't see why sci-fi or Netflix or Amazon couldn't support this in some way, and keeping in with Johnson's owning of the theatrical rights, give it a limited theatrical release before broadcasting it on television. I'd very much like to see Johnson re-envision V for the next generation. Finally tonight, I've got one last... No, no, I've got two. Two more emails. Another one has just arrived, so I'll cover these two. Mark Lax has emailed in saying, uh, I have been very much enjoying the past few episodes. First, if you remember the discussion about Paul Michael Glazier, if I were a rich man, was from Fiddler on the Roof, which I remembered after I finished recording. He was terrific in that movie. And I saw it because of Starsky and Hutch and was quite surprised by how truly talented he was with a fantastic singing voice. I've watched Starsky in quite a while, says Mark, but they are running the show on nostalgia cable channel called Cozy. Loved your Star Trek annual coverage with Chris Franklin. Listening to any discussion on Star Trek always has my ear, and I'm embarrassed to say I haven't heard listening to The Prophets, which is next on my list. I've been meaning to start. While Steve Space Nine was not my favourite Trek show, I did enjoy it. And, well, he says some nice things about me. Uh, so, yeah, go and listen to, listen to The Prophets. I very much enjoy doing that show with Sean and Paul. Your discussion got me to go to Netflix and watch The Cage. I was impressed by how well the production was and thought it was a shame Jeffrey Hunter did not continue as a regular on the show. I guess the powers that be had their reasons and Trek wouldn't be the same without Shatner, but had he lived, 
it would have been nice to see Hunter have some part in the film series. And I don't count the Abrams films. There are many genre-bending shows and films I might recommend, such as Supernatural sitcoms, Bewitched, or I Dream of Genie. I don't know how familiar you are with these shows, or even if you consider sitcoms. Interesting here you talk about books. I don't know if you would only cover comic or movie adaptations, but there are many wonderful books that are not part of a series that I'd love to hear discussed. My favourite being Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell by Susanna Clark. It's about to debut as a seven-part miniseries on BBC America. It's a beast of a book, 800 pages, but it does have Neil Gaiman's seal of approval. Discussing some of his books, American Gods may be fun as well. Thanks for listening. Say hello to Michael, your friend Mark Lax. That's an interesting. Uh, that's interesting. Some more book discussion will come. I've just discussed V, the second generation, and I'm interested to check out that uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. So thank you very much, Mark, for for those suggestions. Final email tonight is from Andrew Morton, who merely says spending some time at the palace. You're always welcome. Come in, sit, sit down, sit a spell. What should we talk about? Hi, Andrew. First of all, I would like to say how much I enjoy the Hey Kids comic spin-off show Palace. Since I've watched far more TV than I've read comics, I can and will share my thoughts. With Star Trek, I'm more of a Next Generation fan, but I do have a lot of fondness for the original series, even though, though, I am attached more to the movies. My two personal favourites, occupying the two ends of the spectrum from drama to comedy, are Balance of Terror and The Trouble with Tribbles. If you like to wrestle with views on your favourite TV shows that differ from your own, I recommend checking out the blogs Vaki Rangi, Yakarangi, blogspot.co.uk, and Tardis Eredutorum, philsanderfer.com, slash p slash tardis hyphen eredutorium the latter of which has recently finished up an epic four year journey covering Doctor Who covering every Doctor Who episode sorry and a bunch of spin-off material until the end of Matt Smith's era I am a sucker for TV themes. One of my off-repeated podcasts I listen to is an early episode of Views from the Longbox in which Michael Bailey plays the themes from the 60s Marvel cartoons, Captain America theme being my personal favourite. I agree with most of your choices with a couple of minor differences. One, as Jerry Anderson themes go, my personal favourites are in order Thunderbirds, Terrorhawks and Stingray. Stingray, Stingray. Nothing wrong with those choices, Andrew, all valid. Number two, as good as Erwolf is, and it is brilliant, the title of Best 80s Action Show Theme Music belongs to Knight Rider, which I will assume you didn't add, since it's such a given. <laughs> uh, that, you may have just spoiled one of my upcoming sequel theme tunes there, Andrew, but we'll, we'll let that go. Andrew concludes, after the episode discussing the Constantine Pilot episode, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the rest of the comic book TV movie for on offer. Personally, The Flash has become must-see and Agent Cart has a solid and enjoyable storyline. I will be most displeased if Constantine does not make a comeback. Looking forward to further episodes. Thanks, Andrew Morton. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Um, the Flash is great. I don't know that goes without saying. Love The Flash. Agent Cart, I just read a review of Agent Cart, I think it was on Comics Alliance, that basically said it's an A-plus lead character in a B-plus show, and I pretty much agree with that. I loved Agent Carter, thought it was great, thought maybe the show could have been a little bit better, a little bit, you know, I don't know what it was, but, but Hayley Atwell was fantastic, as was the supporting cast. Um, particularly, and I've completely blanked on his name now, but the guy playing Jarvis is just wrapped up being in the second season of Broadchurch, where he played a completely different character. And to me, demonstrated what true acting is. Beyond my initial, oh, it's Jarvis in Broadchurch, I never again thought of him as Jarvis. He was a completely different character, completely disappeared 
into the character who's playing in Broadchurch and in Agent Carter. Proper actor. Should I hope we see more of him because he was brilliant. And Constantine, I'm six episodes in now, loving it very much. So we may do a Constantine episode talking about all the other episodes when uh, Michael and I have had to go around to watching them all. And that about wraps it up for this time. Next time on an all-new episode of The Palace of Glittering Delights, the only episode I've got written at this moment is an episode called Doppelgangers, about my favourite episodes of TV shows where they have evil twins or um, otherwise um, duplicate versions of the hero slash heroine, whatever. So that will probably be next. Thank you for joining me. I'll see you next time. If you do want to email in, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is the email address I am using for this show. Thank you for tuning in, and obviously a very special thanks to Scott Rifen for sending me a copy of that book. I did greatly enjoy it. Thank you very much. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.